Greetings once again, podcast listeners. Welcome back to yet another episode of Healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Healthcare has surely come a long way over the past century. In fact, in 1920, antibiotics had not yet been invented and people routinely died of common, now easily preventable and treatable diseases such as diphtheria. Back then, the heart was considered by the most esteemed of physicians and surgeons as an organ out of bounds for anyone to interfere with. And the great surgeon, Dr. Theodore Billroth, declared that a surgeon who tries to suture a heart deserves to lose the esteem of his colleagues. Thus, the treatment of one of the most prevalent killers of Americans, coronary artery disease, went entirely untreated and people died. One of our most common surgical diseases, acute appendicitis, which we now rapidly diagnose and often treat with minimally invasive surgery, was a common source of severe morbidity and mortality back then. In fact, 40% of those diagnosed with perforated appendicitis died. And as far as managing trauma goes, in 1920, 60% of patients who suffered a gunshot wound to the abdomen and survived long enough to make it to a surgeon's OR table died, either in the operating room or shortly thereafter of infectious complications. However, countless people survived some of the most devastating injuries these days as a result of advances in surgical technique and critical care management. In the early 20th century, one in 10 babies died during the first year of their life. And coupled with all of the diseases acquired during the adult years, the average life expectancy back then was less than 60 years. However, life expectancy these days averages nearly 80 years, and we all likely know someone who has lived well into their 90s and perhaps even beyond 100 years of age. Living longer is clearly a function of better health care. We as physicians and surgeons have innumerable items in our bag of tricks that we can do to patients. And whereas this has resulted in extending the life of many, it has also created a number of unrealistic expectations. And sometimes those unrealistic expectations force doctors to do things to patients which extend their chronological lives, but often do not take into account the real pain and suffering associated with many of these treatments and procedures. Thus, we can often prolong the number of days on this earth, but we may do so at the expense of worsening the quality of life. And that is what I'm going to focus on today. The title of today's segment is called Unrealistic Expectations and End-of-Life Issues. And I hope to not only dispel certain myths, I also hope to get those listening to understand that it's not always the right thing to do or the right decision to do everything just because we can. But before I get into what many of you may find to be a difficult and sobering topic, I would like to go off on my usual tangent and talk about one of the very good aspects of healthcare in America early in my discussion. And today that tangent will focus on neonatal healthcare. As I said just a few moments ago, one in 10 of every babies born in the 1920s died within their first year of life. That's 10%. But today, thanks to advances in maternity care and most especially neonatal care, that number has dropped to a mere one half percent, translating to a 95% drop in infant mortality. Almost 10% of babies are born prematurely, and whereas most premature infants born in decades past did not survive, neonatologists are now keeping preemies alive who were born months too soon. Pregnant women ordinarily carry a baby for 39 to 40 weeks. That is considered full term. But thanks to modern medicine, 80% of babies born after just 26 weeks of gestation are now kept alive. A few years back, a severely premature baby born after just 23 weeks in her mother's womb and weighing merely a half pound was kept alive in the neonatal intensive care unit for five months and then discharged home. She's considered a miracle baby and is the smallest preemie on the registrar to have survived. Whereas premature infants are most certainly subject to a number of complications and developmental issues, 
Thanks to advances in healthcare, most babies born at 27 weeks gestation grow up without any adverse neurological effects. The nurses and the neonatologists who care for these little ones are truly special people. They are the dedicated scientists and the dedicated nurturers who run an intensive care unit like lions protecting their cubs. They breathe for these little preemies through tubes no larger than soda straws, and they expertly insert IV lines into blood vessels almost too small to see with the naked eye. They keep babies alive on machines which require continuous manipulation so as not to cause any harm to these tiny, fragile little human beings. And they handle the many crises and setbacks with grace and style. Sometimes these little ones need emergency surgery to correct conditions incompatible with survival. But thanks to the many advances in pediatric surgery, doctors give these otherwise hopeless babies a real chance to live a long life. And thus, my shout-out today goes to all the professionals who care for the newborn babies in our neonatal ICUs all across America. They most certainly represent the good of healthcare in America, and I salute them. But now I need to get back on topic. Unfortunately, I will be doing a complete 180 after just mentioning how many babies' lives are being saved these days. I now need to talk about the complete opposite end of the life spectrum. In generations past, dying was universally accepted as a natural end. Children played. Teens became educated and then worked, young adults married and raised children, and old people died. In the year of our nation's birth, only 25% of people born would survive to reach the age of 25, and just 1% of all people born at that time would grow up to reach the ripe old age of 75. Most people in our nation's history died of infectious disease, and almost a third of the world's population was sickened during the influenza pandemic after the turn of the 20th century, during which nearly one in five of those infected with the virus died. Death was commonplace. No one liked thinking about it, but everyone did. Back then, virtually everyone nursed a family member during his or her last weeks or days, doing all that they could to provide their loved one compassionate, end-of-life care in a respectful, dignified manner. Cardiovascular disease and cancer then took over as the leading cause of death in this last century. But vastly improving technologies and drugs have managed illnesses and chronic diseases, allowing people to live longer and longer. As a result, people started taking advanced age for granted. People stopped talking about death, and many people began convincing themselves that they or their aged loved ones were actually younger than their chronological age. Of course, an aging person's organ systems continue to get older despite what any people perceive. Brain, kidneys, bones, and muscles all atrophy with age and lose their functional redundancy. Older people lose their sense of balance, increasing their fall risk. They often develop swallowing dysfunction, increasing the risk of aspirating food into their lungs. They have decreasing abilities to control their bowels and bladder. If one's coronary arteries get blocked, modern technology allows a cardiologist to perform heart catheterization and open the occluded vessels and keep them open with drug-eluting stents. People who have had strokes or who are living with atrial fibrillation can take highly potent blood thinning or antiplatelet agents to prevent tiny blood clots from reblocking the small arteries in the heart or brain. People with a failing heart can have automatic pacemaker defibrillators implanted, which can maintain the heart's electrical function virtually forever. Newer antibiotics are available, which can treat the latest and the most aggressive of bacterial infections, and drugs which block our body's natural immune system allow organ transplants to thrive when our natural organs die. Chemotherapy agents and external beam radiation treatments extend life in countless people with cancer, and advanced surgical techniques save many who would otherwise die without such treatment. Chest-crushing CPR and large jolts of electricity can beat a dying heart back to life, and ventilators which breathe for someone through surgically created tracheostomy tubes cause them to ventilate properly. 
Feeding pumps, which provide calories via endoscopically and surgically inserted feeding tubes, can keep a person alive, sometimes for many years, even when the patient has lost all desire to live. But when is enough enough? Every invasive procedure causes some pain and suffering. Enduring temporary pain and suffering so as to claim long-term benefits seems entirely reasonable, but what if they are very limited or perhaps no long-term benefits at all? What if all we are really doing is causing pain and suffering? Hippocrates would roll over in his grave. I'm going to break up the rest of my talk into two parts. First, I'll deal with the subject of unrealistic expectations, and then later I'll cover the concept of de-escalation of care, changing the goals from a cure-all, do-all paradigm to a create-optimal-comfort-and-quality-of-life paradigm. And so with that, I will dive right into the subject of unrealistic expectations. To begin, all human beings start out frail and vulnerable. And with the right care, nurturing, and in some cases, good luck, the vast majority eventually develop into robust, independent adults. Most people reach their peak of strength and function in their early to mid-20s, and most maintain much of that well into their middle-aged years. By that term, middle age, that has changed over the centuries, and even over the last 20 to 30 years. Middle age used to be when parents were done rearing their children, say in the mid-40s, or certainly by the mid-50s. But very few people these days who are in that age sector feel all that great about being called middle-aged. I've heard phrases like, 50 is the new 30, and even 70 is the new 50. And whereas it's true that eating healthier, exercising, avoiding toxic substances, and the wonders of plastic surgery all certainly allow a lot of grandparents to look and feel decades younger than their actual age, the date on their birth certificate does not lie. All people eventually start to experience a decline in their physical strength, in their endurance, and in their overall physical function. It's a quantifiable fact that as people age, they lose muscle cells, lung cells, brain cells, and kidney cells. Even the seemingly healthiest cohort of older individuals have measurable decreases in strength and endurance, in measurable pulmonary function, in cognitive abilities, and in kidney function. It becomes objectively noticeable in different people at different ages, but eventually, if one waits long enough and if enough decades pass, that measurable decline will be noticeable in everyone. Eventually, there comes a time when everyone starts to lose independence, when organ systems start to unravel, and when they find themselves on that slippery slope approaching their final years. And the undeniable truth that so many people are afraid to face is that everyone eventually dies. Of course, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about it for ourselves, and we don't want to think about it for our elderly parents or loved ones approaching the ends of their natural lives. That's normal. But being unable to grasp the inevitable truth can sometimes lead to misguided thinking, and being unable to muster the ability to talk about or even think about death can cause some people to make very misguided healthcare decisions. At times, those poor healthcare decisions force treatments onto ourselves or onto our loved ones, which are futile. In some cases, absolutely nothing is going to extend certain patients' lives. When that time comes, unless people are subjected to existing on the various means of artificial life support, the body will cease to function altogether. Whereas I've heard innumerable people say that they would never want to live their final months hooked up to a ventilator or to be fed by a feeding tube, it can be very difficult for family members who make decisions on behalf of their loved ones to remember or to honor these wishes. I think that because doctors have made such tremendous advances in so many areas of healthcare, thereby extending the lives for years, in some cases, in patients with conditions one thought of as terminal, many people begin to think that there is nothing that modern medicine can't fix. So many people feel that surely there is somebody out there who can cure everything these days, even despite our own self-destruction. 
countless Americans live with uncontrolled diabetes, who still smoke despite having advanced stages of lung disease, who eat the unhealthiest of diets despite having had several heart attacks, and are living exclusively due to the many metallic stents keeping their coronary arteries from plugging shut. And there are many whose weight is more than that of two healthy people. We want to think that doctors will be able to salvage us or our loved ones should any of us take a turn for the worse or get into a very scary situation, but that is not necessarily the case. Many of us have these expectations that something can and will be done to fix everything. We don't want to even think about the alternative, and often something can be done, such as CPR when the heart stops beating, or surgery and more chemo when the widely advanced cancer has recurred yet again. But the reality is that these salvage treatments can sometimes be worse than the disease itself. TV shows have portrayed a very benign version of dramatic near-death experiences where lovely patients still wearing makeup undergo some sort of heroic treatment following a horrible accident or medical catastrophe, who lie peacefully in a bed in a comatose state, and then following some tearful and dramatic expression of love from a companion or relative, suddenly the patient wakes up. Before the next commercial, that near-death patient is seemingly back to normal, and life goes on as if nothing ever happened. That is simply not reality. These shows do a disservice to anyone who has not had the unfortunate and painful experience of spending weeks or months with a critically ill loved one, hospitalized in the intensive care unit with tubes and lines in every orifice, being kept alive by too many to count drips and mechanical devices. For those patients who do recover, what often follows is a lengthy period of rehab at a nursing home where patients who have lost most of their abilities need retraining on how to walk again, or how to brush their teeth, or how to talk, and so much more. And these are the patients who can be rehabilitated. These are the patients who have not reached a point of no return. These are often younger and healthier patients who have not yet racked up a lengthy list of serious chronic illnesses which have slowly eroded away at a body's independence. And that lengthy period of convalescence is not without its own pain and suffering. Most patients and most family members do not enjoy that time of their life. But that piece is simply never portrayed in the TV shows and in the movies which we have all seen. Cancer is a very scary condition to endure. So many people get diagnosed with breast cancer, lung cancer, ovarian cancer, and a whole host of others. And fortunately, there are some very successful and promising treatments out there for many of them. In nearly all cases, a patient's cancer is both staged and graded. Most types of cancer are staged based on a system which measures the size of the tumor, the presence, absence, and number of regional lymph nodes to which the cancer has spread, and whether or not the cancer has spread to distant organs, also known as metastasis. Each type of cancer has its own staging system, but in general is declared as stage 1, stage 2, 3, or 4, with various subtypes included. The higher the stage, the more advanced the cancer. Now, cancer grading is very different. In simplest terms, the grade of a cancer, often described as well-differentiated, moderately differentiated, or poorly differentiated, reflects the biological characteristics or the biological aggressiveness of the cancer cells and how they actually appear under the microscope. Those in the poorly differentiated category are the worst and are often the most aggressive and often have the poorest response to conventional cancer treatments. So not only are cancers of different organs different, breast cancer being very different than, say, pancreatic cancer, Different cancers of the same organ behave differently depending on the cancer stage and the cancer grade. The options to treat cancer typically include surgery with or without radiation and chemotherapy. Some cancers require no surgery or radiation or are too advanced for surgery to have any benefit, but many cancers can be treated with some sort of surgical resection. Following surgery is typically when the cancer stage is officially determined, but high-resolution CT scanners often can give a pretty good estimation of cancer stage prior to the surgery. 
cancer grade can only be determined following a biopsy or after analyzing the entire tumor under the microscope following surgical resection. Radiation therapy is sometimes needed following surgery and chemotherapy is also required in nearly all but those found to have the earliest stages and the lowest grades of cancers. And whereas modern radiation therapy is typically rather well tolerated, most patients do not enjoy any aspect of their chemotherapy. Thankfully, modern advances in cancer care have yielded wonderful results for countless patients who just a few decades ago would have found themselves in a relatively hopeless situation, and that most definitely contributes to the good of healthcare in America. However, we all know that for some, the cancer comes back, and when it does, the medical and surgical oncologists can often offer a second round of chemotherapy and or surgery, and sometimes additional rounds of chemo are needed when the tumors don't respond well. And finally, for the most unfortunate of those affected, although more chemo can be prescribed, the benefits will be slim, but the adverse effects will be substantial. Eventually, even the most esteemed of our nation's cancer centers will not be able to offer much hope. But despite this fact, additional chemo may be offered despite the inevitable suffering and the risk of potential complications. For some, sooner or later, the cancer wins the fight. And whereas the most kind, benevolent, and compassionate option would be to cease all treatment and place the patient in a comfort care status, some patients and family members simply refuse this option. I've seen far too many patients with recurrent, advanced cancer in their final stages of life who are brought to the emergency room in the throes of death, either with complications of salvage chemotherapy, such as intestinal perforation with resultant excruciating pain, or from peritoneal carcinomatosis, where billions of cancer seeds have literally bathed every organ of the abdomen, creating a cocoon of cancer plastering the insides into an unnavigable, unresectable, obstructed mess. And there's nothing that we can do about this. But when we tell patients or their families this bad news, they are often in disbelief and feel that this cannot be possible. Yet it is possible. And in fact, there is nothing that anyone could do. And when this occurs, I often wonder how it is that someone who has been through so much and has spent so much time with cancer doctors still somehow does not know that sometimes there is nothing more for any of us to do. It's because somebody either was never upfront and truly honest with them about their recurrent, recurrent disease process or because some patients or family members have had unrealistic expectations throughout. And this is an example of the bad of healthcare in America. When patients reach their end of life and can no longer express their own wishes or desires, it would be extremely helpful to know exactly what they would want for us to do to them. Unfortunately, far too many people have never discussed end-of-life issues with family members or with a primary care physician. Loved ones who are forced to make decisions on these patients' behalf often have no idea how to proceed. Whereas primary care physicians in decades past used to know their patients well and had the trust and the rapport, allowing them to have reality-based end-of-life discussions with their patients, often knowing the patients so well that end-of-life decisions were deferred exclusively to the trusted primary care doctor, this all too often no longer happens. I feel that when primary care physicians ignore this extremely important aspect of their vocation, that this exemplifies the bad of healthcare in America. And when the resultant lack of information, the fear, and the absence of support leads to misguided end-of-life decision-making, this exemplifies the ugly of American healthcare. If only the primary care physician was able to be at the critically ill patient's bedside, but most PCPs have completely stopped attending to their patients when hospitalized, even when they're at the risk of dying, and this contributes to the ugly of healthcare in America. Unfortunately, without a trusted primary care physician available, there leaves no one best person to make decisions on behalf of the incapacitated individual because many people have many different perspectives. First, there is the family perspective. These are the people who know the patient best. But whereas family members are usually in the best position to speak on the patient's behalf, 
All too often, there is one individual who disagrees with the other family members. Typically, that person is a son or daughter who lives on the other side of the nation, has not spent much time with the incapacitated family member in recent years, but harbors some degree of guilt. Despite the fact that one person may have the legal authority to override every other family member's opinions, in order to keep the peace within the family, the legally appointed power of attorney often delays any decision-making until the family conflict can be resolved. But this may take a long while, or it may never happen at all, and thus, patient care is deferred to a do-all paradigm despite the adverse ramifications. Next, there is the nurse's perspective. As nurses are the healthcare providers who spend the most time with patients, nurses truly know what people go through when they are suffering. Nurses see the best of medical outcomes, and they see the worst of medical outcomes. Nurses see the ones who recover despite great periods of suffering, and nurses see the ones that linger in misery until the very moment of their death. Nurses often develop a sixth sense about who won't ever again be productive or who are more likely to die despite all care being provided. A nurse's opinion can be extremely valuable, but perhaps not enough people ask the nurse what he or she thinks is best. And then there is the perspective of the doctor working in the hospital. The doctors are the ones who trained for so many years to learn all of the nuances of disease, treatment, life, and death. So it would seem logical that the doctor should be the one in the best position to make end-of-life decisions on behalf of the patient, right? Well, this is not always so. We have to assume that the vast majority of physicians will make responsible, ethical, and moral treatment decisions when considering their patient's options, but this is not uniformly practiced. Unlike the old-school primary care physicians previously discussed, who typically had a well-established relationship with the patient, the doctors covering a shift on the medical floor or in the ICU have no prior relationship with the patient and typically have no knowledge of the patient's end-of-life wishes. And then finally, there is the legal perspective. There are laws which govern who can make decisions on a patient's behalf. However, the laws and legal definitions are not always cut and dry. Sometimes scenarios that lawyers include in living will documents are unrealistic. For example, a family member may present a legal document drawn up by a very capable attorney which states the following. If in the opinion of two or more physicians, the patient has absolutely no chance of recovery and will exist indefinitely in a persistent vegetative state or will remain forever dependent on artificial life support, life-sustaining supportive treatments should be withdrawn. The problem with that statement is that it may be impossible for two physicians to know with 100% certainty that there will be no chance of recovery. Perhaps a physician may feel that there's a 95% chance of no recovery, but that is not a zero chance. Thus, when there's legal ambiguity, patient care is again deferred to a do-all paradigm. So you can see that when an incapacitated patient has not been clear as to exactly what he or she would want if faced with an end-of-life decision, family members, doctors, nurses, and most of all, patients are put in a very difficult position. There is a particular patient who I will never forget, whose end-of-life was particularly troubling to me. It was late at night and I was on call, and I was called by the intensive care unit by a nurse relaying a phone call made to her by a pulmonary doctor asking me to come to the ICU and to insert a chest tube into a patient whose lung had collapsed. I was told that an elderly patient had been admitted with pneumonia, that he was not breathing well, and had to be placed on a ventilator a few days prior. Apparently, he wasn't responding to conventional ventilator therapy or antibiotics, and the pulmonary physician turned up the ventilator pressures to squeeze a bit more oxygen into the patient's failing lungs but the pressure was too high for that particular patient and one of his lungs collapsed and now needed a bedside surgical procedure where an incision is made into the chest and a finger-sized tube is inserted into the chest cavity allowing the lung to reinflate. I've performed this procedure thousands of times, 
mostly on trauma patients who were shot in the chest, stabbed, or whose lung had collapsed as a result of blunt injury to the chest. It is most definitely not a pleasant experience for the patient, and I always administer a a hefty dose of narcotic pain medication and intravenous sedation, in addition to a local anesthetic, so as not to torture the patient. I responded to the ICU immediately, and I was at the patient's bedside within minutes. But what I saw was really quite sad. I found an old man, perhaps in his late 80s, skin and bones cachectic, curled up into a rigid, fixed fetal position, with a breathing tube in his mouth, seemingly oblivious to the world around him. Just a momentary glance gave me all of the information I needed to know that this poor man was in the throes of death and was desperately trying to die. I looked at the chest x-ray and in fact the lung was partially collapsed. His oxygen level was low and so was his blood pressure. But the patient was in the farthest stages of his chronic disease process and in fact showed absolutely no signs of pain or suffering. The first thing I asked the nurse was whether this patient was a DNR or a do not resuscitate status as I knew that he could die at any moment. But to my surprise, the nurse told me with a look of exasperation that his family wanted everything to be done. I asked the nurse to gather up all of the supplies necessary for me to insert the chest tube. But while she was doing this, I wanted to personally talk with a family member. I found two daughters around the corner with whom dad had apparently lived, and I compassionately discussed their dad's status with them, and I advised them that in his current end-of-life state that perhaps doing nothing might in fact be the better option. I told them that because his blood pressure was so low that if I administered a bunch of pain meds and IV sedation that I would drastically lower their dad's blood pressure and his circulation might fail requiring CPR, something that would certainly break his ribs and would only extend his life for a matter of hours or days. I stated that I did not believe that their dad was currently suffering in any way, that his advanced dementia and his overall poor condition was in fact nature's way of letting him pass peacefully. I also said that by not administering the pain meds prior to a procedure that I would be causing suffering as inserting a chest tube is not a pleasant procedure to endure without proper medication. But the family refused to let dad pass peacefully. Instead, they told me that I needed to do everything and insert that chest tube with a minimum of pain meds because they could not bear the thought of him dying. Even though dad had apparently been nonverbal, had not been able to interact with the family in any way, and had been unable to eat for many months. I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. I knew that I needed to honor the family's wishes, but I dreaded doing what I was being forced to do. And so I performed the bedside procedure with a very small amount of pain medication, which did drop his blood pressure. I anesthetized his skin and I cut into his chest, swiftly spreading the hole between his ribs with a surgical instrument, and I inserted the chest tube deep into his chest cavity. The elderly man groaned and winced from the pain, like a newborn in the neonatal ICU recoiling when poked with a nurse's needle. His body began shaking violently as he was too frail to react in any other way. I felt terrible because I know how painful it is to do what I did to him, but I had to do it. I was forced to do it by the family members who were supposed to be making medical decisions for dad in his best interest, not theirs. In the end, I reinflated his lung, but of course, he did not get better. I later learned that he coded the next day, that is, his heart stopped. And because he was still not a DNR status, the nurses were forced to perform CPR, breaking several of his ribs, all without success, and dad died about 30 minutes later. The nurses were terribly troubled by all this. None of it was kind, and none of it was compassionate. The family's expectations were unrealistic, yet they were too scared, didn't understand, or perhaps too selfish to let go. Rather, they let dad suffer longer than he ever should have, despite everyone in that ICU knowing that any further treatment was a futile endeavor. When those with the authority to make healthcare decisions only allow for everything to be done, be it the patient or the delegated surrogate family member who makes this decision, physicians and surgeons are forced to prescribe certain treatments and perform certain procedures 
which will not only not cure the ailment, but may cause a lot of truly unnecessary pain and suffering to the inevitably dying patient. In the case I just described, it was the two daughters who served as the patient's surrogate and were the ones with the legal authority to make decisions on their father's behalf. But did they actually do this? Is this truly what dad would have wanted? If we could have asked him 10 years earlier what he would have wanted us to do if one day found to be in the exact same situation, would he have wanted to endure his end of life that way? If only his daughters would have considered de-escalating dad's care, if only they had considered the option of comfort care rather than do-everything care, and if only they had placed him in a DNR status at the very end, then dad would have ended his life in a peaceful manner rather than with all of that suffering. But too many people simply don't know all the options in advance, and when faced with an end-of-life crisis situation, they revert to what they are feeling in their heart and choose to do everything. Too many people feel that doing less than everything is tantamount to giving up, to causing one to die, and that perception causes far too much emotional pain and too much guilt for some to endure. But I argue, and people who specialize in end-of-life care believe, that comfort care, that is palliative care and even hospice care, are in fact kind and compassionate versions of old-fashioned care and in many cases is much better than the standard do-everything option. Comfort care is defined as medical treatments and care plans intended solely to improve quality of life and to minimize pain and suffering. Nurses, mental health workers, chaplains, physicians, and even surgeons may be involved in the care of these patients. Comfort care includes palliative care and hospice care. Palliative care is a form of comfort care whereby treatment options are limited to only those which do not make life more miserable. Most often, the goal of treatment is not to cure, but to make life better. But when it appears that chronic disease has won the battle and that death is inevitable, hospice care becomes a very useful option. Once a patient is transitioned to a hospice status, all treatments whose goals had been aimed at curing disease are for the most part stopped entirely, and only those treatments which mitigate suffering are prescribed. Hospice truly is an old-fashioned bedside type of care where patients are kept warm, clean, and as comfortable as possible during their last days, weeks, or months. When these patients' hearts stop beating or when they simply stop breathing, we don't sound the alarms or perform CPR or even begin artificial respiration. Instead, we allow these patients to pass peacefully with dignity and grace. I think that if a lot of people thought about how they might want to be cared for during their final years should a variety of options be placed before them, a number of them would opt for less aggressive, less invasive forms of care, especially if stricken with a terminal illness or an irreversibly disabling condition. Most people want autonomy in their life. That is, they wish to choose their right of self-determination, to make their own informed and voluntary choices without coercion or manipulation. And most people would like to be treated with dignity, that is, treated with kindness and respect and with a sense of continued worthiness despite being in a dependent end-of-life condition. But too many people adopt an attitude of paternalism in this country, whereby an attitude of making decisions on the behalf of others, often without regard to a patient's wishes, trumps everything else. We highly discourage paternalism, yet it's still so common, albeit perhaps unintentional. When a patient can no longer ex express his or her wishes and a family member or next of kin is asked to make decisions on the patient's behalf, decisions are often made to satisfy the wants and needs of the family member rather than that of the patient. Loved ones' emotions cloud decision-making, understandably, and all too often patients are put through a lot of unnecessary pain and suffering during their final stages of life. Informed consent is the legal authority to make decisions. In most cases, patients themselves make their own treatment decisions and are given all of the options following a thorough discussion between doctor and patient. But when the patient is too ill to participate in that discussion, or when the patient no longer has the physical or cognitive capacity 
to process the information, a surrogate is delegated to make decisions on behalf of the patient. That surrogate is usually a spouse or companion, or in the absence of a spouse or companion, maybe the parent or the oldest child or even a friend when all their options are unavailable. But far too often, the surrogate doesn't truly know how to speak on behalf of the patient because a frank discussion regarding end-of-life wishes never took place. And equally common, the surrogate is simply too emotionally invested and distraught to not make decisions which completely and uniformly represent the wishes and desires of the patient. In some cases, a patient's medical condition is futile. That is, providing any additional traditional medical treatment will not provide any additional benefit to the patient. Continuing to provide all forms of aggressive medical treatment when a patient has reached a state of futility merely provides pain and suffering without any real hope of any positive outcome. But advanced directives made by patients during their healthier years can help eliminate a lot of that pain and suffering and allow for patients to exert their autonomy to make their own decisions even after they've lost their capacity to do so. Advanced directives include living wills and other like documents which spell out exactly how patients wish to be treated should they be diagnosed with certain conditions or end-of-life scenarios. But truly, the most important component of -of end-of-life decision-making is a thorough discussion between patient and family members, often aided by a doctor or other healthcare member who understands end-of-life issues, allowing the patient to make his or her own decisions ahead of time. If patients and loved ones have never had these discussions, it makes end-of-life surrogate decision-making extremely difficult, and thus thinking about these issues well in advance is paramount to easing this incredibly difficult and painful process for everyone. I believe that people should begin discussing end-of-life issues during the middle-aged years, perhaps with simple discussions to introduce the topic. Then perhaps once a year, an additional short discussion should take place whereby individuals begin to express how they wish to be cared for should a terrible situation arise. Whereas this sounds like a morbid and horribly depressing topic of discussion, if done bit by bit over the years, when the time comes for a loved one to assume the very difficult responsibility of making decisions on behalf of a dying patient, that responsibility can be less burdensome knowing exactly what the patient wanted, what that patient stated repeatedly, and thus a lot less guilt and indecisiveness occurs. Making end-of-life decisions on someone else's behalf is never easy, and thus whatever can be done to make this difficult time easier for the patient and the surrogate alike should be pursued early on. In most cases, I suggest that individuals take the lead and initiate these discussions themselves. But when an elderly or sick loved one is starting to accumulate a lot of serious health conditions and they have never initiated the conversation, a close family member should begin the talks. So after all that has been said, where do we go from here? For starters, we must all embrace the circle of life concept. Everyone entered this world as a fragile infant, completely dependent on the care of others, and many of us will leave this world in an identical manner. Everyone eventually approaches the final stage of their natural life, and we all need to acknowledge when that's happening to our loved ones and to ourselves so as to better accept that eventual end. Next, we all need to have periodic discussions with our most trusted confidants and loved ones regarding our end-of-life wishes. If when we are old and in a more dependent state of being, should our heart stop, would we want CPR performed on us? If we are no longer able to breathe on our own, would we want to be kept alive on a ventilator? If we are no longer able to eat food by mouth, would we want to have a feeding tube inserted? If we are completely unable to care for ourselves and now live in a nursing home, would we want doctors to aggressively treat any subsequent life-threatening illnesses? Of course, our attitudes and perspectives on these manners will change over the years. Thus, periodic discussions are in order rather than just a one-time conversation. 
It would be great if primary care physicians could initiate discussions with their patients at certain intervals, say starting at age 60 and every five years or so thereafter, or more often if needed, should someone develop a debilitating condition. These discussions should be honest and forthright and should stimulate genuine soul-searching so that patients have a realistic understanding of their future and began to genuinely articulate their own end-of-life wishes. Patients should create advanced directives, such as a living will, so that their wishes and their desires are documented in writing, guiding any and all healthcare decision-making following their own loss of capacity. And finally, family members need to honor the wishes of their loved ones. Far too often, when an older, very seriously ill patient was too sick or capacitated to speak on his or her own behalf, family members make end-of-life decisions which contradict the will and desires expressed by the patient during their healthier years. And although I understand why this happens, as end-of-life is a very difficult and emotional time, we all owe it to our loved ones to allow them to remain autonomous even when they are no longer able to speak for themselves. And so with those recommendations in mind, I will conclude this topic. I've literally said all that I can think about on this topic of unrealistic expectations and end-of-life issues. Although it's a rather sobering topic to talk about, we all will be faced with the realities of the subject sooner or later. And thus, I will end with my thanks to all of you who endured listening through to the very end, and I most certainly hope that you'll continue to look for my future podcasts on healthcare in America, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm Dr. James Cole, and I once again thank you for listening. This podcast and the rest of the podcasts in this series reflect my opinions and do not necessarily represent the positions of any other institution or entity. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to Marie Hathaway for the artwork and for producing this podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed the guitar music because that is me playing and taking my own creative liberties. And we hope that you will again join us for our next episode of Healthcare in America, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly.